Sometimes this comes up in a conversation with uh, children and their parents. So kids, be prepared to roll your eyes. That's okay. I'll let you do that now. Just once, this one time. But your parents ask you this question because they know it's true of their lives. Wink, wink, parents, grandparents. You do something that you know you shouldn't have done. Maybe it was sinful. Maybe it wasn't, and it was just a mistake. There's a difference, by the way, and you learned from it, and you can learn equally from both. And maybe mom or dad says something like, now what did you learn from that? And you're like, oh, I think I'm supposed to dig deep here. Well, I learned that I should always obey mom and dad by not fill in the blank, right? Or I learned that actions have consequences, or I've learned that whatever the case might be, right? You, you are supposed to pony up with what you've learned, right? Uh, it's as true for when we're children as when we grow up, and we learn from things that have happened in the past, And for believers, we look to God's word and we learn about how God works with his people in what we call redemptive history, which is God's big story for how he has created and is saving people for his glory. In other words, as we look throughout history, we look in the Bible and we see a lot. We don't see everything. We see We see the aspects of redemption history in the Bible that God, in his infinite wisdom, has deemed necessary for us to understand, which is why God can tell us that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and correction and rebuke and training in righteousness. Every word of it. But does every word of the Bible convey the, you know, the exact same weight, maybe? Well, in different circumstances or situations. We're not going to try to sort that out right now. The point is, we can read the Old Testament and always be learning something magnificent about our magnificent God. We can always be learning not only from the characters in the Bible that are in addition to the Lord, because there are many. But as I've said, in the handful of weeks that we've been in the book of Genesis so far, we read and most of our headings say something like Noah's Ark, or we talk about Noah's Ark, or we read a a a book about Noah's Ark. Well, Noah built this Ark, but this is God's story, right? This is God's flood, God's judgment. God's saving a particular people for himself. A whole bunch of questions there that we don't fully understand. We just acknowledge that right out of the gates. But as we read about salvation history, let me tell you one thing that is better than learning a life lesson from something that you've done. You ready for this, kids? Every kid in the room, look up here, okay? Parents, I'm talking to the kids, I'm talking to you. Every kid, look up here for a second. I'm going to teach you a really important life lesson. You ready? What's more important, or not more important, what's more, what's better 
than learning from your own mistake or your own sin in the past. Anybody have an idea? Learning from someone else's mistake or sin. Like that's the jackpot, right? If somebody else sins, well, they have to deal with God, but you can learn from it, right? You're like a step ahead then. And if you pick that up now, let me tell you, (laughs) there will be blessings that you can't count. And that's coming from somebody who really liked learning from my own mistakes and my own sins. But I had a pastor in college ask me one time, if you could change any one thing about your history, your life, your relationship with God, what would it be? And I thought, and I thought, and and I came up with several things. And I told him what they were, and I said, what about you? And he said, nothing. Well, that's pretty arrogant. No, I I didn't. I thought it, but I didn't say it. He was my mentor, so I knew when to just be quiet and listen. My pastor. He said nothing. Because if I didn't go through the pain that I went through, I know that I would not have the mercy and the grace for people that God helps me have now. I know that if I didn't experience the difficulty, the trial, whether sins or mistakes, again, which are different, but equally valuable, that I wouldn't have learned how to trust God, however imperfectly for sure, but the way I do now. And so, yeah, would I go back and in my humanness want to change some things? Sure. But would I trade the lessons that God has taught me through those trials, through those sins that I learned from, through those mistakes? Not a price you could put on how valuable they are. And as we look at the Old Testament, we ought to be approaching it in much the same way. There are many lessons we learn from the lives of unbelievers, from the lives of faithful believers, and from the lives of people who had faith, and then it didn't seem like they had faith, and then they had faith, and we're like, where did the faith go? And you just read, and it just seems like that's a lot of their life. Well, that feels a lot like my life sometimes. And so there's much we can learn there. If you have your Bibles with you or a, 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 a Bible app, go ahead and open up. We're in Genesis chapter 7, and we're looking at 7:16 through 8:22. And there are parts uh, of my message I'll just tell you where I'm going to be kind of cruising through because um, there's a lot to cover, there's a lot that's important, and I think it all comes together in a, in a cohesive message for us this morning. At least I pray that it does. Genesis 7:16 through 8:22. I'll begin reading. The Lord's word this morning. I'm picking up on 16. It's what we, where we ended last week, but I want to pick that thought up as we continue. And those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Him referring to, to Noah. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. In other words, it floated up as this massive boat floated up 
as the waters increased. And they bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly in the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the ark prevailed mightily on the earth that that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits, which is about 22 and a half feet, 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock and beasts and swarming creatures and all that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, heavens, they, <clears throat> they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And we learned previously his family. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, five months. And then here's the hinge point of everything we've been reading. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain uh, from the heavens was restrained. And the water receded from the earth continually. At the end of a 150 days, another five months, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate or to recede until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened a window in the ark uh, that he had made. And he, he sent forth a, a raven, went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. And uh, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth, so that he put out his hand and he took her in and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and he sent forth a dove and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried off the earth. And Noah removed the covering from the ark and he looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and theirs and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm and be fruitful or swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his uh, sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, 
I just love that phrase. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention, or though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Collective deep breath. It's a long passage. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we live according to God's promises in faith because his word has historically been proven true. Redemption history that I talked about a few minutes ago proves uh, or demonstrates that God will do what he says. Even if we work pretty hard to limit ourselves to the immediate context, which means the closest parts of this, these verses right here, but we can go throughout the whole Old Testament. It's what we do. In fact, every Advent we say, uh, which is the four weeks preceding Christmas, we look back to the promise of the coming Messiah that Old Testament believers had. They look to the coming of Jesus. What we as Christians taking off that we look to the coming of Jesus a second time, his second advent. So, but, but, but maintaining a pretty close focus here, everything that we're seeing, everything that we're reading of right here, God said he would do right. When he says that the, the, the flood continued 40 days, well, verse four tells us that in seven days, a flood is coming and that it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Guess what? God said it, it happened. 17 through 19, the waters increased and they bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth and the waters prevailed on the earth. The New English translation says that they engulfed the earth. Well, we're out of that in chapter 6, verse 7, 13 and 17. Verse 20 tells us that the waters prevailed over the mountains or, or engulfed the earth, including the mountains, and it covered them by 22 and a half feet high. Well, that's the definition of using water as judgment to wipe out and kill, blot out everything on the earth. Verse 21, chapter 7, verse 21. I forgot to put my note there, so I'm just going to look at it. All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock and beasts. That's kind of what I was just saying. Verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 13 says, I've decided, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. I'm going to destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters. Brother, friends, a flood didn't happen. It didn't just happen. God brought a flood. I will bring a flood of waters. Everything that's on the earth shall die. Chapter 7, verse 4. I will send rain on the earth. Who is sending rain? God is sending rain. Who is opening up the ground so that the depths of the earth burst forth with water? God is making that happen. And as we look back in human history, Second Peter, all the way toward the back of your New Testament, says, and that by means of these things, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And Peter uses this as an example and as a motivation to believers in his day to walk in faith and trust the Lord and follow the Lord. He reaches all the way back before Abraham. And often in the Old Testament, we read the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Peter goes all the way back to Noah. 
And we don't question God's word, but Pastor David Guzik points out that of the more than 200 cultures that have their own account of the flood, the following aspects are are frequently commonly told. 88% of these cultures describe a favored family. 70% attribute this survival to a boat. 95% say that the sole cause of this catastrophe is a flood. 66% say that the disaster is due to man's wickedness. Interesting that that number is lower. We don't like to talk about or admit our own wickedness. 67% record that animals were also saved. 57% describe that the survivors end up on a mountain. They also, many of them mentioned birds being sent out, a rainbow, and eight persons being saved. Now, we don't believe it because other cultures affirm it. What we're saying is God did something so massive, so catastrophic, so memorable, that everyone, every culture in some way knows of this. The story has been repeated over and over for millennia. And I mentioned Peter encourages suffering Christians to look back at the fulfillment of God's promise to bring confidence for standing strong in the days of head more completely. Here's what he says in second Peter uh, three, one through seven. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. We're going to look at the first letter next week, but in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that, listen friends and see if this sounds much like today, scoffers will come in the last day scoffing. That's what scoffers do, they scoff. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately, do you see that? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about, um, for the Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, or only evil all the time. And we focused on that word intentions, every intention. It doesn't mean we sinned on accident. It means our intent is, without God's intervention, ungodly. And here it says that they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and they, and, and, and through water by the word of God and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction for the ungodly. Proverbs 10, 4 says in his, in, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, meaning God. All his thoughts are, there's no God. Proverbs continues eleven twenty one. be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Friends, God has warned us through what we have seen in history. God has shown himself through creation that he is divine and that he is eternal, that he is God so that no man, no person is without excuse. Because his divine attributes have clearly been seen through creation. For the wrath of, wrath of God is revealed, Romans 1.18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppression uh, of truth is an active uh, 
energy, if you will, I mean, if you could visualize this, of something trying to say, spring up here. There's truth trying to come up into our knowledge and into our heart. And when we suppress it, we actively say, no, I am pushing this down. You might try to bring it up into my memory. You might try to make me think that you're God, but I push this down and in my ungodliness, I say, there is no God. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except by me, we say, no, there are more ways to heaven than through Jesus and Jesus alone by God's grace through faith. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And often, because God has given every person a conscience, often what we do is we fill our lives with other things so we don't have to listen to this truth that keeps coming at us, either from God's word, the church of Jesus Christ, who loves people and continually holds out the truth of the gospel of grace to other people, or through creation. We want to busy ourselves so we don't have to deal with our conscience. So we don't have to deal with God. But that, my friends, is actively suppressing truth. For what can be known about God is made plain to them because God showed it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, every person, is without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile. They, they, they thought to a dead end, purposeless in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God, truth of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and they served the creature creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It sure sounds like this God we worship is stubborn. Sure sounds like this God that we worship, this God whose grace we speak so much of, pretty stuck in his ways. Well, rest assured he is. And when you're God and you're good and everything that you do is right, tempted to say you can be, but in fact you have to be because it's the only way that is right. And so we need to learn from these past actions. We need to learn from the ways that God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. The second point for this morning is that God remembered his promise to Noah and he will remember his promise to Jesus. And this is the whole hinge point for for this flood narrative or this flood story, right? Remember that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about history. There's a whole lot that happened in history we don't read about in the Bible, There's a whole lot of conversation probably between Noah and his sons. You want us to help you build a what? You know, that kind of stuff. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens that we don't see in the Bible. God focuses us. He focuses our attention on what we need to know to know him better as our first priority and to understand how to live in relationship with him. 
He tells us everything we need to know to know him and to interpret historical and current events so that we can live godly lives in this world. And I just want to tell you, friends, these two words, chapter 8, verse 1, but God. These may be the two most wonderful words in the English language. But God. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. This is a, this is a promise that, that he made to, to Abraham when he prayed for Lot at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He kept his promise. I, I said that wrong. But God remembered the promise that he made to Abraham when Abraham prayed for Lot. I, I don't have time to go into detail on these. I'm just going to list several things. You can look them up and we can talk about them later if you're interested. But in Genesis 30, 22, Rachel has agony over being barren. God hears and he answers her prayers and she gives birth to Joseph. Now, we have a temptation, friends. We have a temptation to look at how God answers particular prayers in the Old Testament or even in the New and ask questions like this. Well, God answered Rachel's prayer for a baby. And he's not answering mine. He must have loved her more. Nothing could be further from the truth. Remember, this isn't about Rachel. It's not about Joseph, the son she bore, who, whose story takes up 20 chapters almost. It's about God. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is about God, and that is good. How many of you want all the details of your life written in, written in a book compared to the God of the universe printed for generation upon generation upon generation for all to see? See, in one sense, we want the Bible. We read the Bible in a very humanistic, man-centered, me-centered often, even that kind of way. But friends, there is peace, there is joy, there is it's wonderful to realize that the Bible is about God. God brought the flood because man was evil. God brought the waters and God killed everyone. Everyone deserved to be killed, including Noah and his family. But God had mercy to save a family. Oh, I've been praying for so-and-so to come to the Lord. Why would God save me and not them? No idea. Not because you're better. Not because you deserve it. Not because I deserve it. Because God's wisdom is infinitely perfect. And so we're reading about and we're learning about and we're growing in an understanding of who God is. But God remembered Noah, all the beasts of the field, the livestock. Exodus 2.22, he hears the agony of his people in slavery in Egypt. He remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham. Right Now, this is what we call an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphic just has to do with the idea of man or mankind. And an anthropomorphism is just a fancy way that other people talk about to say we're using expression of the human makeup to describe God. In other words, God does never forget anything, but God remembers. Well, that's God's way of saying let me say this in a way you'll understand. I've said this before, right? We sometimes kneel down and we get on the kids level sometimes and we say, hey, let me explain this to you. 
And then our verbiage changes. Sometimes our tone changes. We use words that they understand better. That's what God's doing. He's communicating helpfully to us because God in his love is revealing himself to us. And so when he says God remembers, it, it really means God willfully and fully knowingly engages his memory to call to mind, if you will. Again, can't get away from that language. Romans 5, 6 through 8 on this but God concept. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Are you seeing the connection there? If you know somebody and you like them and you think they're good and you think they're good for this world to have a little bit longer, you might give your life for them. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First Corinthians one twenty seven, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Notice that Moses goes out of his way to communicate that God made the waters recede. Verse one B. I know you think we're going to be here till midnight. <laughs> we might. Uh, God caused the waters to recede. And do you see that it says God, God, oh, friends, God restrained the waters. That means in the blink of an eye, God could let go of his restraint and the world would be underwater again in no time. But God made a promise God is keeping his promise. And so God is restraining the waters. He is restraining active judgment out of his great mercy and patience. God is doing the working, but he does expect us to do what we're able to do. In other words, we can do nothing that adds to our salvation except sin. I mean, like we sin and demonstrate our need for a savior. Congratulations, you've contributed to your need for salvation. Paul tells uh, the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we're supposed to do whatever is humanly possible, but in trust of God to guide us and to direct us and to do, uh, trust God to do was not what's not humanly possible, which is most of what God calls us to do. And yet we are supposed to put one foot in front of the other. I can't tell you how many times mm, I got to be careful here. How do you think it would have gone if Noah said, "No, we're not going to get off the boat." I have no idea what's even though the boat was probably like this on Mount Ararat. I mean, I don't know if it was nice and flat and neat or God says, hey, Noah, time to get off the boat. No, we like it in here. Can you imagine? There's a whole world they wouldn't have experienced. And they would have died eventually. 
God says, get off the boat. Okay, get off the boat. They took normal steps of faith-filled confidence in God's promises to get off the boat, to repopulate the earth. But they didn't hoard. Notice this. There weren't very many animals on the earth. Just, just what they had taken into the ark. And what happens? They get off the ark, and rather than say, we better not sacrifice these animals to God because they might go extinct. They said, no, we're going to do what God says, and we're going to get off the ark, and we know that we're supposed to offer worship to the Lord, and that's what we're going to do. So made a burnt offering, and it rose as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. They worshiped God with the first fruits of what God had given them, with what they took onto the ark. They didn't worry about, do we have enough for later? They said, we've got to worship God now with what we have. They took extra animals for the offering, but even still, there weren't many animals. And I want you to notice, it's like this refrain that we see, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. When God tells people to work to take care of their families, he never means misprioritize your life in order to meet a cultural expectation of what you have to keep up with the Joneses. He means work to earn a faithful living so that you can provide for your family as you trust me. That's what he says. That's what he means. They worshiped God. Finally, in closing, toward the end of the passage in, in 20 through 22, we see that Noah glorifies God and he gives God and God gives a merciful promise. Now, I want you to be careful not to draw um, too strong of a dis- Well, um, let me just. This idea of doing what God calls us to do and then God blessing is a very biblical promise. We see it all throughout Scripture. And so it's not wrong to say that God gave a merciful promise in response to Noah's worship. But in our only evil all the time intentions, we misconstrue that into, if I do more, God will do more, which is just, he's here for me. No, brothers and sisters, friends, we're here for God. Noah glorifies God by building an altar to the Lord. Noah Noah brings glory to God by expressing God's worth. That's the idea of worship, worthship. We're describing his worth, not just as we sing songs of praise and we may lift up our hands or get on our knees or just stand quietly in repentance, which is worship. But bringing our, our offering to the Lord is worship. Serving others is worship. When we do these things from a right heart and a right attitude, we, we bring glory to God by demonstrating his worth in our life. When our communion and first impressions team show up early to prepare the room and communion elements for worship, they glorify God by sacrificing their time, getting up early so that you don't have to, so that they can serve you. When our worship team gives their all to planning and preparation and prayer and rehearsal and leading, they glorify God by sacrificing their time. I'll tell you, they sacrifice their, their, their worship in a sense. This is worship. But when you're leading worship, you're thinking about chords and what's next and words and verses and the roadmap. And there's a lot of things going through your mind as you're worshiping. There's a sacrifice of praise in there as 
they lead us in worship. When you don't know where to turn and you feel like hope is lost, but you crack open your Bible and you're like, I haven't read. Oh, I just ripped my Bible. Sorry, Lord. Uh, and you crack it open and, and you dust it off and you say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to look, but I'm going to, I'm going to look at God's words. You glorify God in your effort to know him and to meet him there in prayer because you know he will meet you there in prayer. When our deacons meet to consider how they can lead as lead servants can minister to the church family by removing barriers to worship and serving around the facility and meeting practical, tangible, tangible needs, benevolence ministry needs and more, they glorify God, when our pastors and elders meet to pray and consider how we can best equip you, the church body, for the work of ministry, according to Ephesians 4, refusing to keep it all to ourselves, which is sometimes easier, we glorify God. It's also arrogant when we think that way. So we have to repent frequently and say, okay, Lord, we're going to follow your plan and your ways. When you sacrificially give of your, your time and your resources to meet a neighbor's need in the name of Jesus, you glorify God as Moses glorified God. When we give of the first fruits of our income off the top, trusting God's provision to meet our needs, we glorify God by his grace and mercy and provision. When we step forward in faith with some nervousness and we say, I will personally help fulfill the Great Commission and Oak Grove Church's mission statement by helping one or a few people grow in their relationship with God, by opening up the word together and fellowshipping together around the word of God, you glorify God. When you open your home in radical hospitality to someone in need of a friend, for someone in need of support, you glorify God. When you say, "My, my kids are acting out and they're, They're old enough that they could get the boot, which at times is appropriate. But you do everything that you do for the glory of Jesus Christ and their ultimate, our ultimate prayer for them, that they would turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. You glorify God. When you say, my my marriage is hard, but I'm going to remain faithful to the covenant I made before God and others, and I'm going to trust that God will reward faith-filled obedience, sometimes in ways that I wouldn't choose, that I don't like, but ultimately glorify God. When the world says love is love, which I don't even understand, and advocates for relationships that go against our nature in every way, you don't cower in fear in order to be loving, but lovingly stand for God's truth while building relationships with people we love, Because God loves them. You glorify God. When you, having sat in this or another room where God's word is preached, you acknowledge, you agree with God that you are in desperate need for a savior. You put your faith in Christ alone who paid the penalty for your sins. You believe that he is enough according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, one is made right before God. The gavel goes goes down and God said, you're righteous, you're perfect, you are in Christ. And I will receive you into glory one day. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You glorify God. When you prioritize the thing that God the things that God calls his people to prioritize in life, you you glorify God. When you put yourself out there 
vulnerably giving a piece of your heart to someone else that they may, this is what vulnerability is by definition, they might do damage to you, they might hurt you, but you say, I'm going to trust God, and that means if they hurt me, God's in it. I don't want it, but I'm going to trust God and I'm going to trust His church because I want to glorify God with my life. Then, friend, you glorify God with your life. And then God makes a gracious promise, despite the fact that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil from youth or or from birth. I know that's a hard one to swallow. I said it kind of harshly one day, and my kids have never let me live it down. But from infancy, early, early in life, we know that children can understand some things about right and wrong. Now, we're not getting into an age of accountability or anything like that, but I'm just pointing out that we can see that little children cry because they need something and they cry because they're mad as a hornet at you for not giving them what they want. The thoughts of man's heart are only evil all the time without God's intervention in our lives. And so when Noah glor- Moses glorified God, no, Moses is writing, talking about Noah, sorry. When he smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, never again. God made a promise to himself before he made a covenant with us. Never again will I curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Brothers and sisters, one day, every living creature who does not trust in the name of the Lord our God will be struck down. But not to oblivion, but to an eternal fire. And I say this because it's God's truth and it's communicated with deep affection and a lasting hope that you will turn from your sinful ways if you haven't already and trust in the everlasting God.